it was very difficult to live with that image of seeing him lying in the back seat of the car on Mrs. Kennedy's lap, a big, large hole in the top and the right side of his head. That image has lived with me ever since that time. When she came out in the trunk, she didn't come out there to get out of the car. She came out there to retrieve something that came off the president's head. My job was to get her back in the car. Two former members of the John F. Kennedy Secret Service detail, Gerald Blaine and Clint Hill. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. You know, Americans of certain ages remember very clearly where they were when certain things happened. My parents remembered, for example, Pearl Harbor Day. My children remember the day the Challenger exploded. I remember the John F. Kennedy assassination, November 22, 1963, in Dallas, Texas. It was a Friday afternoon, and President and Mrs. Kennedy had gone to Dallas, a very conservative state at the time, to begin their campaign for re-election the following year. Now, we all know what happened. The motorcade drove through Dealey Plaza, rounded the corner. Lee Harvey Oswald took shots from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. The rest is history. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. But in the intervening decades, members of the presidential secret service detail, the people assigned to protect the president and Mrs. Kennedy, spoke very little publicly about what had happened that horrible day, rarely even speaking to each other about it in their retirement years. That changed in 2010 when Gerald Blaine, one of the senior members of the detail, wrote a book about what it was like during those years. One of the fellow agents whose story is told in this book is Clint Hill. You may not remember his name, but you've seen his picture a million times. Clint Hill was the agent who ran, sprinted forward to the Kennedy limousine after the first shot was fired. He's the one seen in photos spread-eagled over the first couple as the limousine started to speed away. I met Gerald Blaine and Clint Hill in 2010 when they were in Washington to talk about their book. So here now, from 2010, Gerald Blaine and Clint Hill. There's been a lot written about uh, Kennedy and uh, especially the assassination from uh, a point of view of an entire cottage industry of conspiracy. And so the agents felt finally that it's, uh, it's time to come forward. There are not many of us left, and uh, those that are left are up in years. And we decided we'd... Uh, put out our statement uh, to balance history. So, uh, The reader will take note that you tell us very early on in the book, the two of you, that this is not just your story. Absolutely. We decided to go on a third-person basis because everybody had a different story and they look at it from a different perspective uh, because it's their personal experience. And protection, when you're around the president many times it's when you're alone and uh, not as a group and those were the uh, stories that came out on it well indeed this book the story begins long before that day in 1963 why did you decide that you needed to tell all all those years the whole story because you had to put his entire administration 
together with the agents because that was the experience we lived. And it reflects how the agents uh, believed in President Kennedy and appreciated President Kennedy. So you had to know what that relationship was before you go to Dallas. You had a, you, the, the agents had a very good relationship with the President and First Lady, did you not? Absolutely, absolutely. He was a very personable individual, and uh, you'd be standing on post. You never would speak to the President until he spoke to you, and he come over and ask the agents how how their kids were and uh if uh, somebody had a newborn baby in the family he would uh, comment on that just uh, a very warm personable individual but i'm guessing you also had to make sure that you didn't blur the line between wow i'm a member of the kennedy family now and your job your job is to protect the president not to become a member of his family Absolutely. That's uh, what every agent has to understand. We have a, a motto in, uh, on every commission book that says, worthy of trust and confidence. And that means the first family's private life among themselves remains with them. Uh, the items we put in the book were those personal interfaces between the first family and the agent. Do you think most readers will be surprised to learn that you and your fellow agents have really never discussed this in great detail before you started doing this book? I, I think it's a, a complex process that nobody today really understands. But after the assassination, we were so busy that we didn't have time to reflect on it. There was no trauma counseling. So we all carried it forward, not realizing what impact it was going to have on our lives afterwards. And that goes for every agent that served with him from the uh, start of his administration. If they only worked 60 days, they uh, still had that feeling. So You had post-traumatic stress disorder before we knew what to call post-traumatic stress disorder. I, th- I believe that's the case. I, most of the agents that I know went through a personality change, uh, probably more quiet, kept things to themselves, uh, uh, reflected back whenever anything uh, brought the memories back of that day, especially uh, Clint Hill and Paul Landis and the agents in the follow-up car. It, uh, they did everything they could. Clint Hill performed a supernatural uh, attempt of trying to reach the car. He had to uh, run, catch up with about 85 feet, and the car was going 11 miles an hour. Clint had to run at least 15 miles an hour to catch it and got there the third shot went off before he got there and uh that's tough uh, well mr hill is sitting right here you tell us in the introduction your forward to the book that if it had been anybody besides jerry blaine calling you to talk about this you might have just hung up on them had you never discussed this in detail before never in depth uh, i'd been offered many opportunities to either write a book or contribute to a book but until jerry <clears throat> promised me that he would make sure it was factual no salacious information or gossip. I wasn't interested. And once he assured me that that was the case, I agreed to contribute. I have to say what remarkable 
almost superhuman self-restraint you too and the and your fellow agents have had to basically hold your silence for almost five decades that's that's incredible well it just was one of those things we we didn't discuss it with our families <clears throat> we didn't discuss it among ourselves and it wasn't until this book that jerry's right wrote that we agreed to discuss it at all were you surprised jerry at the openness with which your fellow agents were now ready to talk about it uh, I wasn't surprised because I had a difficult time asking them. We, uh, I communicated by email. I sent out a questionnaire, but I found out, you know, I really wasn't touching the depth of it. And uh, so I went, I talked to everybody by the telephone, and a two-minute conversation ended up into an hour conversation and somebody suggested a reunion and we had that uh, last year in uh, Dallas and uh, that brought it to the forefront it, I, I forgive my irreverence isn't a reunion of you guys in Dallas sort of like John McCain and his buddies having a reunion at the Hanoi Hilton I mean why would you go back there <laughs> because that's where it happened and that's where the memories were, and I think for Clint, that's where the memories were buried in a way. Clint had to uh, live with the uh, family for a year after the assassination, so he had not only his own stress to deal with, but he had to go through mourning with the family, and uh, that had an impact, I think, a very heavy impact on him. Yeah, that was a difficult period of time, especially Christmas of 1963, Seeing those two young children without a father and this young widow was a very difficult period of time. But I'm guessing, coming back to something you said a moment ago, that over the years it must be, it must have been extremely painful to, for each of you to read in each new book that would come out every year about what you supposedly did or didn't do that could have helped or could have prevented or could have done something. I, I can't believe the restraint that you guys have shown over the years. Well, I think what broke down the restraint were the facts that all of a sudden these theorists were bringing forth ideas that agents were involved in a conspiracy, that agents, one agent, uh, the driver, was accused of turning around and shooting uh, the president. And if you look at the Zap Ruder film, when it goes by, Jackie Kennedy had her head right in front of the president, and uh, he'd had to shoot over the Conleys. And I'm not telling you anything new if I say that one. When I Googled your book, one of the first results that came up was there's a journalist slash blogger who's throwing all kinds of cold water on, well, whatever he's calling himself these days, that says. You guys are full of it, and he uses much more colorful language than that when you say that the president ordered the, the men off the back of the car. <laughs> well, he does not know. He's one that uh, called up a number of agents and sent letters to agents and emails, and uh, uh, most of the answers, there's not an agent that would uh, readily talk to somebody who calls up over the telephone, especially when they say, was President Kennedy easy to protect? And they would say, well, yes, you know, he was so easy to protect. That's why he got shot. So uh, it's not even a rational argument over the thing. At any rate, uh, he did order the agents off the back of the car in Tampa, Florida, mainly because he was elected 
to pass a civil rights bill. His political style was to mingle with the people, and he was a master at it. And when he went down south for the first time, he wanted to mingle with the people. Is that even possible anymore? I mean, your heart must jump into your throat when you see a president saying, hey, I'd like to stop here and shake hands with this crowd that you haven't vetted and screened and everything. Well, I'm, you know, it's part of a democratic process. There's some people that are a little bit more narcissistic than uh, other people. Uh, some people thrive on that style. President Eisenhower uh, didn't have a narcissistic bone in his body. So uh, now, Mr. Hill, of course, you're you were tasked to protect the first lady uh, and the children. So you, this was an unusual trip that you guys made together. It was the first time Mrs. Kennedy had traveled within the continental limits of the United States on a political trip since the election in 1960. And it was a surprise to me that she uh, was going to do this because she had just had the uh, terrible trauma going through the loss of a young son, Patrick, in August of that, that year, 1963. I've often, you know, I've, I've, like all of us, I've seen the film so many times. I've seen those, those frames just keep replaying over and over again. Were you in the moment fearful that Mrs. Kennedy might herself tumble out of the car, maybe get run over? Well, I... When she came out in the trunk, <clears throat> she didn't come out there to get out of the car. She came out there re to retrieve something that came off the president's head. And uh, my job was to get her back in the car and secure the area and, and cover as much as I could so that nobody could do any further damage. And that's what I did. So sure, I was concerned that she might uh, come back off the top of the car, but uh, I just had to do what I could to get her back in the back seat. Because maybe here's an opportunity to debunk one of those many myths is that she was trying to get out of the car to get away from the f gunman that was on the grassy knoll because she was she saw something. This is, so again, one of the conspiracy theories. Yeah. Well, Mrs. Kennedy doesn't even remember herself. She testified uh, to the justice that she didn't even realize she went on the trunk. So there was trauma. Who knows? You know, she probably saw her husband one minute and then he just blew apart the next minute not uh well, i mean that's the thing it's traumatic enough for you guys to witness this but to be sitting next to your own spouse and have i can't even imagine the horror <laughs> i can't either i can't uh do that do you have i mean this i'm sure you've been asked this many times do you have nightmares do you do you wake up in a cold sweat i did have for years i had nightmares and uh, so many things would remind me of what had happened and it was very difficult to live with that image of seeing him lying in the back seat of the car on Mrs. Kennedy's lap, head up, the right side of his face exposed, and a big, large hole in the top, in the right side of his head, about the size of my palm. That image has lived with me ever since that time. I, I would guess that the two of you have, have known only your own little piece of a puzzle. Now that you know what the other puzzle pieces look like, how does it change how you feel about your experience? Well, I think everybody has semi-resolved it with themselves now. I, people are acting like themselves again. The timing was right. I, you had to retire first. The way we hit everything was bury ourselves in work. I went to see the movie JFK, and uh, he tried to put every conspiracy theory together. And I walked out of that movie and I said, that's the last I read of that. And I, you know, just shut my mouth and uh, had a long career. And when I retired, 
JFK's assassination was the one thing that I had not resolved. Mr. Hill, I, I gather you're glad the book is done, the story is told finally? Yes, it's a relief to have it out, and it's a relief for me personally and emotionally to get rid of that emotional baggage and have it exposed. Gerald Blaine is 88 now and lives in Colorado. Clint Hill is also 88. He lives in California. Have you subscribed yet to Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, with scientific knowledge seemingly becoming very political these days, we'll revisit my interview from almost two decades ago with a very renowned astrophysicist who says we can't afford not to be scientifically literate. My 2000 interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Science literacy, I mean, in the era in which we live, the last thing we need is a scientifically illiterate public because of too many issues, too many problems, too many things you're going to have to vote on. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.